Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best selling author of Project to Product How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. On today's episode, my plus one is Sam Guggenheimer, product owner for Azure DevOps. Sam's a regular keynote speaker and the author of four great books. Sam provides some tremendous advice on the project to product manuscript, and today he addresses some much more profound topics as he answers my questions on how organizations should think about the turning point in the age of software, as well as technology and innovation during and beyond the pandemic. I hope that you enjoy his very profound insights. So with that, let's begin. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Sam Guckenheimer today. Sam is the product owner of Azure DevOps at Microsoft. And more importantly, he's been one of my mentors and, and inspirations over the years. He gave me some of the most pointed and powerful feedback when I was writing Project to Product that has stuck with me. And I've learned the importance of even more as, as I've been presenting the book over the last couple of years. So we'll hit on some of those points. But Sam, welcome to the show. And why don't we just get started uh, and dive into the, the situation that we're seeing today, the conversations you and I have had around what's happening in terms of technological revolutions and turning points, and, uh, and go from there. So welcome. Thanks for having me, Mick. I mean, I, I love the podcast you did with Carlota Perez. <laughs> it's funny, that was the, I listened to that literally on the last day before I started sheltering in place. It was uh, March 6th and I was walking around Frankfurt and then flew home the next day and I've been sheltering in place since. That's right, I remember our, our quick correspondence then. Yeah, for, you know, for me, I recorded that, it must have been, I think it was end of January if I recall correctly. Since then, I've been corresponding and having calls with Carla Perez really, you know, end of February and March around what exactly is happening here. Because I think you know, she's been telling us about these, the way these revolutions work, the way they build bubbles, the way that the bubbles will actually you know, cause all sorts of interesting things to happen, be it income inequality, be it overinvestment in certain sectors, be it you know, the various balloons that, that, that we see, and then they come to these turning points. And what triggers the turning points is never predictable, but we both email each other on the same day saying, it looks like this is it, this is a, deep enough and big enough thing that this, this is fundamentally different than what we saw in 2000 and 07, 08 as well. It's much more broad. And in these major changes that her models predict we have as organizations in the economy try to master one kind of production, this waves of disruption that are catalyzed by these economic events, this looks like it, it could be the one. So Yeah, I think it is. The, you know, I've been a, and I've been a fan of her work for years. I do think we're seeing a change due to COVID-19 that is unlike anything in our lifetimes. It is, I think, most comparable to what happened coming out of the, quote, roaring 20s into the Great Depression. I think we're going to, you know, we are clearly seeing levels of unemployment and economic displacement that we haven't seen since then. And because this is first and foremost a public health crisis, we're really seeing huge tragedy in public health and, and behavioral change that will be necess necessary for all of us. I think the acceleration of economic changes is gonna be qualitatively unlike 
any of the quote disruptions we heard about around you know the the 2008 financial recession or the dot com bust or any of that we're talking about something that is much more fundamentally going to change the look of how we live and work after than before yeah exactly a lot of my conversations with Kiwata Paris were about this, as she's been doing a bunch more work about the historical context of each of the turning points, right? And then, you know, one of the, the key things that she stated is that these these points are not as discrete as, as we like to see them, um, but they are, they, they always have a, a start, and then when they end, they trigger the deployment period, they trigger the change, they trigger the rebuild. So one thing I learned that, that I had not, from reading her book, had a enough of an appreciation for and from our past conversations is that multiple of the turning points actually uh, had multiple crashes. There were multiple events. And the way that she took me through that is, you know, the way that to think about it is that uh, she always called it and it's been like this, she's been describing it this way, but that, that these events will happen. And then either we actually enter this, the, the, the turning point, or we start, like with the dot-com crash, there's some kind of rescue packages and so on, and then it snaps back to, installa to installation conditions. I think one of the best analogies for uh, what we're going through is the history of electrification. So if you look at the, that history, it actually started in the late 19th century, and it started with Edison inventing DC generation and the light bulb and so forth. And at that time, you know, the JP Morgans and the, the very rich would build their power plants so that they could use electric lights. And the idea that if you wanted to get off uh, kerosene light, you needed to build your own power plant was sort of the model. And then came Westinghouse and Tesla and alternating current and Edison fought that, he electrocuted elephants and, you know, did all this crazy stuff in order to hang on to the DC power generation model, which was, I mean, clearly Edison was brilliant and, and the whole idea was right, but, but that was not how you were going to be able to distribute electricity. But it wasn't until the depression in the 1930s that we had rural electrification. And it was really the, the change in the private to public sector relationship that allowed rural electrification to bring the benefits of that broadly to so much of the population. And I think that was one example of a flattening of income inequality that happened after the, the Great Recession by, by using what was the previously available technology. I think the other thing that we, we saw starting beforehand, but then accelerating then, was a total change in how people thought about manufacturing. So manufacturing had been initially designed around the, pow the central power source, and then with the invention of the assembly line that was possible only because you could now have many electric motors distributed through a plant horizontally. And you went from vertical plant design to optimize the 
avail the, the proximity to the central power source to uh, optimizing a form of flow in the in the plant and the then the mass electrification spread that further and you saw that of course in in North America and then under what were then developing regimes you saw electrification spread so i think we are now at the point where it's not electrification but it's things like broadly available broadband rural broadband 5g it's use of the public cloud it is acceptance of the cloud and the public infrastructure uh, in place of archaic private infrastructure three months ago you still would hear all these discussions of, oh no, we'll never put FUBAR in the public cloud. And now all of a sudden, oh, well, yeah, maybe the cloud's better than not being able to work. And so I think data centers will be closed the way private power plants were closed. And I think that we'll really see a, a huge change in how people work and with it, a necessary change in how we regulate tech and think about the, the corresponding ethics of uh, what we're doing. Yeah, so Sam, I mean, a few, I think, key points here. And I think it is, it's, it's really interesting to me that you're bringing up the electrification aspect of it, because I think you and me, you know, when, when we do travel, when we used to travel, I should say, we would go and, and look at these amazing private power plants with kerosene lamps everywhere, right? And, and wonder <laughs> how long this can keep up, right? Because these, these investments, all these large organizations make in new kerosene lamps and better sources of kerosene and more people to light them, that, that's what was so stark to me in realizing this, this turning point had to come is because those kinds of investments of rebuilding the wheel, reinventing new kinds of wheel, actually old kinds of wheels, they could not last. And so before we get into that, though, I think the interesting thing about Carla Perez's models is you've got this installation period where th these new periods are created, right? And what I talked a lot about in my book is that in the 1970s with a microprocessor and then Microsoft, we started this age of software and digital. And so I think What's so interesting now is, and it's actually, it's, it's so in parallels, the stories that you just told with electricity, is that the technologies are there already, right? That we've actually got, if, if Perez's models are right, we've actually got all of the technologies, the practices that we need in order to get us into a rebuild um, and into the, these infrastructures that will actually power the, the deployment period, power where more organizations, more individuals have access to, to the new ways of working and, and scaling the new ways of, of production, which is through software, right? You're at Microsoft, Microsoft has already done, it's figured this out, it's helped start the, the age of software. But now the interesting thing is, that if that infrastructure becomes more broadly available, and this is top of mind for me because a couple of days ago, I, I interviewed the, uh, Brian Fleming, the SVU of Technology um, at T-Mobile, right? 5G is there, right? C cloud is there already. Um, modern delivery practices, both from a management and a technical point of view, are all there. So can you just say, before we dig into to how organizations can think about and leverage this, can you just you know, say a little bit more about what worked when you know, at, let's say in the rebuild after the Great Depression in the New Deal around organizations leveraging this infrastructure and around individuals getting access to this infrastructure and that actually having driven down equality with a combination of regulation and technology. But it, it 
truly feels to me like we're, we, you know, we're seeing some profound parallels right now. It used to be that a barrier to entry to any kind of manufacturing was access to a power source. Then the initial phase of electrification was, well, actually, you could set up your own electrical power plant, but people didn't understand that they needed to, or, or that they had the op- option to design factories differently. Then we got to the Ford era when said, people said, no, 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 we, we can have many electric motors and we can change the factory design. And then we got to massive electrification with broad distribution of national grids and anyone could plug in to power anywhere and you just assumed it turned on. Well, that's, I think, the kind of transformation we're about to see where anyone can plug into computing and it turns on. We still have gaps that I I hope now get closed in terms of internet availability and broadband, but that's that's where I think we are. And I think that's, you know, the the equivalent of the mass electrification that we saw during the New Deal. I think you'll see that that is going to democratize the way people work and companies organize in a way that uh, has not happened yet. And I believe with that comes the notion that that you optimize not for the capital intensive stuff, you optimize for flexibility. I mean, the, the availability of electricity everywhere meant that everyone could have a washing machine, right? So you had all of a sudden, you know, a new world of appliances and you had a tremendous impact on the standard of living because all of a sudden, you know, all of these people who, mostly women who spent hours of their lives doing laundry now didn't have to. And that's a very mundane example. But if you think about how our economy is organized, it's organized around this for the last many decades, big companies with big data centers and the access to computing capacity has largely been controlled by how those things are managed. And you have to wonder, do they matter anymore? Are those like those DC power plants? Yeah. Look at what we're doing. We're having a video conference, right? Video conferencing minutes have increased 100x in the last six weeks because of COVID, right? All of a sudden, you know, we're seeing scale growth in things people weren't thinking about. My, you know, my family's pinging me saying, hey, should we start, you know, doing regular video chats and things like that? And it's becoming part of the fabric of life. No one thought about it before. It was like, you know, uh, oh yeah. Or if they were doing it, they were using these these sort of clunky high latency services. Now it's like, sure, we do it. 
Yes, exactly. So we've, I think we've seen how quickly we can adapt and it's, it has been amazing. Not to say I think it's been easy, but, but it has been uh, amazing. But I think, you know, going, Sam, just rewinding a little bit to your example, because I think what was so stark to me in, in writing Project to Product is, you know, your example with Ford, right? Prior to the turning point, prior to the crash of 29, the Great Depression, he figured out the new factory design. He figured out that, that you were able to, you know, create a much broader, much larger factory with electricity. And then, of course, this, this key piece of infrastructure that you're talking about that came to play with the AC infrastructure that enabled everyone to do that after. And I think what you're saying is we've got that now, right? We've got this turning point today. And the companies who figured out what Ford figured out, talking back then, but today, the example I gave in my book, one of the examples was Microsoft. The companies that figure out what Microsoft has figured out because Microsoft will have no problem getting through this turning point, will be a key part of the rebuild, right? Will be a key part of providing more of the cloud infrastructure and the services that drive, you know, both consumers and business to, to thrive through the rebuild because it's going to be, there are going to be new things. Now it's video conferencing, will you know, there'll be more down the road. So I think you and I share a common frustration, right? Which is that we, over this, you know, growing bubble mentality, we, there's not been enough of a driver for organizations to make these changes, right? The, the new ways of production that the tech giants, companies like Microsoft have mastered, they're, they're already there, right? And contrasting those to what I saw and what really, you know, I documented in, in, this, in this recent post you helped me with on COVID-19 bringing about the turning point, which was, it was completely bubble mentality. I was thinking, I was, yeah, we'll take, you know, we'll take our time, uh, you know, getting rid of our own, our own power plants that we have 18, well, not 18 of, but we have four of globally. Um, and eventually we'll look at cloud, but we'll worry about security and cloud, but not worry about the fact that people who specialize in security are probably better than the security. We're doing ad hoc all over these data centers and so on. So, there's been this, I think, this mentality, and you know, there's been that, that joke going around is, you know, who's driving your digital transformation? Is it the CEO? Is it the CTO? Or is it COVID-19? We're, we're now, I, I think, actually seeing that the third one for the, and a bunch of organizations, I think, were on the right course of action. But what really concerned me over the last two years since publishing Project the Product was just how slow it was going. Leadership realized this, CEOs and boards realized this. But within these organizations, the move to cloud, the move to, you know, modern tool chains and really what powers today's creative factories of software was, was just glacially slow. So, you know, you, you said this fascinating thing to me earlier, which is if there was ever an Occam's razor for core versus context, this is it. Can you speak a bit more to that? Yes, of course. I think the pandemic is Occam's razor for core versus context. You know, Jeffrey Moore has been talking, I think for decades, about looking at your investments in terms of what's core that is unique and differentiating for your business versus context. That is something that everyone has in its table sticks. You know, so are you running your own email server? Well, why? That's context, right? It's uh you, you can get email as SaaS and it's better and it's more economical and there's absolutely no reason for you to have your own resources devoted to that. You know, same thing for uh, CRM, same thing for payroll, same thing for all of these other business systems and to a large extent, 
the growth of SaaS has been an illustration of people realizing we're better off just buying the, the finished service in than trying to run it ourselves. And he, of course, he, Jeffrey Moore, draws on the second axis, mission critical and, and not mission critical. And um, where things are mission critical, like email or payroll or what have you, you, you know, you get a SaaS, you pay for it, that becomes part of your supply of doing business. And the places where you invest uniquely are places where you have differentiated core. Also, you realize that over time, your core differentiation itself becomes diffused through replication in the marketplace and itself becomes context. And you need to disinvest in what was important some time ago because it was differentiating then and now say, wait a minute, we should stop trying to run that ourselves and we should just buy it in. And so the, you see this, this continual evolution of where a business needs to focus. And, and we've been preaching this stuff for a long time. I think the pandemic makes it absolutely visible as to, well, you know, do we need this high-priced office space? Do we need these many stores in these many malls? Do we need to have these many retail branches for our bank? Uh, do we need to have so many people doing so many undifferentiated things? And the answer, of course, is, well, we once did, but we probably don't tomorrow. And as we do physical distancing in the pandemic, a lot of those things will become very clear and people will ask as we come out of the pandemic, do we need to keep doing things the way we did before, or did we learn that a bunch of things are unnecessary? And I think we're gonna learn that a bunch of things are unnecessary. And, you know, for all of the talk about disruption and change and, you know, all that stuff that we've had through startups and investment and venture capital, this is the point at which we are forced through the health crisis to behave differently. And the questions that were interesting um, discussions at conferences suddenly become very visceral and very much everyday experience. So I think that uh, business practices will change. We will become more reliant on ubiquitous technology, the cloud, the internet, the availability of uh, high quality services. We will see a lot of that context get appropriately shelved as waste. And we will see the survivors coming out of the crisis as the ones who can appropriately 
focus on their new core. So well put, Sam. You know, what, what I'd like to dig into now is, is sort of the, the patterns of, of who will be the survivors, right? And I think, you know, you mentioned a bunch of the, of the context and core and that I think will be sort of obvious as organizations try to, or more obvious from a business perspective as organizations adjust. So, you know, the, the notion of branches and other than physical retail locations and so on, right? And the thing I'm seeing that, again, I think you're so attuned to that others are not is, you know, there's going to be now this shift to the organizations who invest properly in digital and in software as they move away from physical, that the ones who do it well will thrive and the ones who don't are just out of time, right? So first of all, there'll be a cohort of organizations that that have just moved too slowly and they will get displaced. It's unfortunate, um, but it's, it is something that, you know, obviously we've been talking about for, for a couple of years. And, you know, I think the key thing is that unless they move very, very quickly right now, it's, you know, for some of them, it might be too late. Then there are those ones who will take this seriously as a way of basically restructuring, rebalancing around the core versus context. And the thing that's, that's always concerned me and really the mission of, of Project to Product is that while at a business level, these organizations are, are very good at it, their leadership is good, it's, it's been difficult to connect that to software delivery. So, you know, within Microsoft, you're constantly reevaluating, well, where is our core? Do we bring in, is some of this getting commoditized? Do we bring in some open source? Because if we keep investing in this part of our platform, well, that's, that's at that end, we can actually leverage this, right? So you think of your digital, your, your software portfolio as a product portfolio uh, holistically and, and understand whether something is creeping up from elsewhere in the market, from the bottom in open source and so on. And so the concern for me is, you know, how do we get, I guess, what are some of the, because I think you know them, right? We've, we've talked about them today and you, you know these patterns of reuse, be it infrastructure or open source um, or, or tooling. Can you just share a bit more? Because again, my concern is that Microsoft knows how to measure these things. Microsoft knows how to spot platform dead ends. Microsoft knows how to you know, look at things from both a, a delivery velocity point of view and a tech debt point of view and a commoditization or a context, you know, things turning into context point of view. If you could just you know, share some of your, your thinking about how you actually look at your value streams, these notions of reuse, because Again, I think what you see, you nailed it, right? Which is the organizations don't they don't very quickly move their investment to core and differentiated core are going to have a very hard time, which then means a hard time for their staff and a harder time for the rebuild. The key virtue that will be rewarded is a kind of flexibility or business agility. The we've talked in the past about the idea that requirements are perishable. Well, a whole bunch of requirements just perished. The pandemic has killed them off. And the realization you have when you look at that is that what's important is not that we can keep doing what we said we were going to do more efficiently so much as that we can optimize our time from idea to data. In other words, we can create a world and a way of working in which we go from wanting to uh, do something for the business and having the data that 
substantiates or diminishes the hypothesis in that idea. And the reason that's so important is that we're not right all the time. In fact, we're right a minority of the time. We think we're right maybe a third of the time with the ideas that we have. So you want to give yourself per month, per week, the maximum number of chances to test those ideas, to get the evidence to substantiate or diminish the idea. And if it has the result you want, you want to have the opportunity to double down quickly. And if it doesn't have the result you want, you want to be able to pivot quickly. And the more you can do that, not only the more chances do you have to get it right and make an improvement, but in, but in fact, you build up a sort of compound interest where the value of every move gets to build on the value of the previous move. And that, that flexibility, I think that's the core DevOps concept that it is being able to get that flexibility. Now, you cannot do that if you're carrying debt. You cannot do that if you have one backlog for the features you're going to do and another backlog for all the engineering work you're going to do. You have to get clean and stay clean. And that means get out of the debt, pay it down, be in a situation where you don't have the impediments that keep you from moving forward because of you know, all of these bugs you got to deal with, all of these security issues, all of these uh, infra issues, all of these permissions, all of these whatevers, you get rid of all that stuff and you really think about optimizing that end-to-end -end idea to data. It's a mindset shift from a world where we grew up thinking about time between failures. MTBF, mean time between failures, was the big thing. And when we had a very high cost of distribution and cost of repair, you know, because we were shipping widgets, or uh, once upon a time in software, we actually shipped physical media, to we get out of that time between failure mentality to thinking about time to recovery. And if you can, if you can try an experiment, you can do so on a sample. You can do so progressively as you collect positive evidence. You can expand the impact radius. If you collect negative evidence, you can revert. As we build up that pipeline for progressive delivery and we optimize for that data-informed way of working, we're able to respond flexibly to the new set of conditions. And it's the companies that, that think that way that, that are going to thrive in the new world. You asked about how we work at Microsoft. Well, at Microsoft, we're doing now on the order of 90,000 production deploys per day. And we only can do that because we have built up the automation with, the, with suitable safeguards in our pipelines that allow us to trust the deployment. 
Now, during the pandemic, we've been much, much more selective about what payloads we deploy. So we've made the batches smaller in most cases, and we've doubled down on other areas like, you know, teams for video conferencing and and distributed meetings and so forth. But we have, because we have the, the that hardened pipeline and those ways of working that where we can trust the machinery, we can move fast. And we, we try very hard. And I mean, this is what Azure DevOps, uh, my product line is all about. We try very hard to take what we uh, learn internally for ourselves. We call this first party and, and make it available to our customers, third party in, in our parlance. Uh, so it's not that we, you know, we try to hang on to these secrets or anything like that. We're, we're very open about sharing. I curate a website where we, we publish a bunch of this stuff. Um, in fact, the, the second most active project on GitHub uh, in the world is the documentation for Azure. <laughs> I mean, that all the docs are on GitHub. Really? Wow. And, you know, you can improve the docs with a pull request if you find an error and what have you. And everyone does. And we just, you know, put all the documentation into open source like that in order to make it as good as possible. And if you look at the pandemic response, all of the action that's happening is scientists sharing data and mm -hmm. models, models about pandemic spread and, and genomic models about the virus and variants and, and antibodies on GitHub. It's so this, this new way of working, regardless of, of the politics and all the, the blah, blah that, that pollutes your ears, the real way people are working is already in this post-pandemic connected world. Yeah, I, I think exactly. I think that that's the key thing. So we're already seeing those new ways of working, right? And it's we're all, already seeing the interesting point that you just made because you know now I'm seeing that the COVID nineteen model from the Imperial College of London is the second most trending project on Git on GitHub today. Right. So those ways of working are already there, and again, my concern is back to the fact that they're not evenly distributed. At yeah. So I think it's it's we need to to help the economy. We need to distribute those new ways of working as fast as we can. Stop the reinventions of the wheel, and and I do want to now. I think this was such a such a key thing that you said, Sam, about the importance of speed of decisions making. Right. So every time you tell me how many times Microsoft deploys per day, I'm amazed, but but I still find it kind of boring at this stage because it's it's now in such high tens of thousands. Ninety thousand is amazing, but <laughs> but. That's the, the goal is to make it boring. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Deployment should not be a big event. Exactly. But business as usual. Exactly. And then the other thing that you say is the amount, because it's boring, um, the amount of data-driven decision-making that enables and how quickly you can shift investments between your various product value streams or tailor what, as you mentioned, with the batch sizes or the kind of changes you're putting when you're putting them that, that you're investing in is, is just amazing. So 
but here's a, just a, a learning for me from last week. We did this workshop with a large healthcare company, right? Really critical to what's going on right now with the, with the pandemic. And it was one thing that was amazing is that we did it with like 60 attendees remotely and people actually participated, right? This is in the height of things. They had just been sent home. They were a little late in their area. So a week prior, everyone's still adjusting. But the, the amount of dedication I saw from, from all these IT and software people in this organization to improvement was amazing. And then I realized it's just the distance where they are or some of these organizations, many of these organizations are to where, where Microsoft is today and other, other innovators are today is, is just so broad because you're getting feedback so quickly at a business level from changes that you put into production on a daily, weekly, you know, monthly basis, right? You've got this closed feedback loop, this PDCA loop, or however, you know, you look at it with now your, um, with your planning systems and your OKRs um, of that that's able to have you move quickly. And you said such a key thing is organizations that will be able to move quickly, make decisions quickly, will be so much better off than the ones who won't. So I realized this yet again, they, uh, so many of these companies have not put in, you know, to your point, I'll be blunt. I think anyone who's trying to right now innovate on their own data centers rather than on a public cloud or potentially a hybrid cloud, which introduces a whole bunch of other complexities has a big problem, right? If, if, if you're not using COVID as a catalyst to accelerate that times a hundred, that's an issue because again, if you're going to learn quickly, you need to deploy quickly, you need to move fast, and you need to put in place your, your IT investments on top of that, not reinventing that wheel. But the thing that I was learning is we need to point out to these organizations, this is now back to this, this big workshop, we need to teach these organizations you know, why and how to invest, right? So what I saw, and this is where I was thinking, okay, these flow metrics, they're helping. Wow, they're, they're helping because what happened is over, they, and they had been doing, measuring their flow metrics on these value streams for, for months. So they were actually able to say, and Sam, I want to point out this, this problem I see with, with some of the technology laggards is their business feedback loop is so much slower than yours, right? Is that because their automation's not there, the tech debt is high, the amount of rework and rebuilding the wheel is high, it's like six months before they get business feedback on something. So I realized, okay, and you know, of course the, the flow framework is meant to be as, okay, input and flow metrics, what kind of business outcome you get, which to you, you can, you can actually see and measure with your A-B testing in hours or days, right? So I realized, okay, these flow metrics are actually helping because these hypotheses these teams made in doing test automation investment meant that their feature flows were no longer spiking up and down. They had actually smoothed it, made batch sizes smaller, and not had the dev teams do a whole bunch of defects by getting the results of manual tests back. I mean, simple and insane as it sounds, that's actually the state of the practice for so many organizations. And tell me what you think of this, but it, it's two things that need, well, the big thing that needs to happen is you need to get that business feedback loop to be like Microsoft's, right, as a, as a business. To do that, you need that automation infrastructure investment. And whenever you make that investment, you need feedback. Did it work? Did it not? Did our flow increase? Did our flow time get, get shortened? And so on. So I am hoping that, that these flow metrics help on that front. Yes, so I think the flow metrics are really important for understanding end-to-end -end and, and getting out of optimizing silos, from optimizing silos to optimizing value streams. Yeah. Um, I do want to say, and uh, you, you, you know, mentioned this, this healthcare company, that a lot of organizations are in uh, regulatory environments where, and I, I believe 
I, I just want to clarify right now. I'm not, I'm not a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. I believe in product safety regulation. I believe that medical innovations should go through double blind trials and all of these things. I think those are there for good reason, but you need to think of them as constraints on how you work, not as objectives. It hit me between the eyes when in another context, I heard a customer describe regulatory compliance as an objective. And it totally missed the point. You don't get quality through regulatory compliance. You get quality through delighting the customer or achieving the, the stellar medical result or what have you. Doing it in a compliant way in, an, in a safe way, that's a constraint on how you do it. It's a necessary constraint. And in fact, I think in, in a great many areas, we don't have enough regulation. The ethics of regulation will also change radically through this pandemic. For example, uh, privacy has been fortunately a hot topic since um, GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act. And I'm, I'm a staunch believer in data privacy. I got off Facebook in 2011 and haven't been on since. But if you ask me, do I think it makes sense to do contact tracking for understanding the spread of the virus? I would say absolutely. And would I consent to having my data used for purposes of public health? I would say absolutely, okay? I don't consent to having my data used for behavioral prediction for advertising and I want those you know, ads out of my face. And I'm happy to pay a subscription instead of having the ads in my face. But we have not had the, the discussion about what the suitable ethics are. Um, facial recognition, another great example. Um, uh, Washington State just this week passed, to my knowledge, the world's first law around permitted and uh, illegal uses of facial recognition technology, right? Can you do mass surveillance? No. Can you try to rescue a child who's been kidnapped? Yes. Those kinds of ethical considerations about product safety in the physical world came about also in the last major transformation. People started worrying about product safety when we had things like automobiles and pharmaceuticals and appliances and all these kinds of things, and we need product safety in the digital world. That's a constraint of doing business. It's not an objective. The objective is getting to the fast, positive result. And the result is in the eyes of the end consumer or citizen or beneficiary. Are we making more people safe and healthy and happy or are we 
ticking the boxes and keeping them as customers because we've put up artificial barriers to switching that are too painful. Well, I mean, I can tell you how I feel about my cable company. <laughs> uh, we clearly need to understand and, and honor the importance of the regulatory environment and, and make it better and make it meaningful in a world that becomes data-driven rather than algorithm-driven. At the same time that we create the safe pipelines to do more of the right thing at better frequency. Yeah, and Sam, it's just a couple you know, first of all, I could not agree more and, and so amazingly put. One, one thing that Paris did say is that at, at, in these turning points, regulation catches up to technology, right? As you said, product safety caught up at, you know, to manufacturing at one point, and, and we were all better off with, a, with the product as a result. And I was actually at a, just a month ago, one of my last trips at a, at a U.S. manufacturer, one of our customers, and we were, we were talking about pipeline safety, as you mentioned, because we saw in, in some of their metrics, one of their bottlenecks was their consumption, they, they, were actually, they actually did understand, I think, as, a, as a, you know, innovative thinkers there, how important core versus context was. So they were ramping rapidly up their consumption of open source. Right? They're, they're already doing it. There's a lot going on over there, obviously, with the need to move faster on autonomous and so on and, and innovation in general. And so they said, well, you know, how are you guys doing it? And we said, well, you know, I don't know, the last six years, of, we've been doing open source for ages. It's, it's just in our pipeline. It's, a, it's exactly as you put, it's a constraint on our pipeline. So if someone basically adds to any one of our value streams an open source library that does not meet our legal requirements, the build breaks. And there's a ticket created and it's resolved. And, and it's just part of the safety of the pipeline. And they just reinvented that wheel a month back and they were proving it out on a small project. So I think that now, of course, they are product safety thinkers culturally. So they already got there. But what's amazing to me is, again, how much the compliance and regulation, I don't think is an excuse. It's a constraint. And you can actually absolutely innovate with that constraint in mind. So I think, again, the kind of thinking that, that, that you apply to your portfolio, it absolutely, for some of the most regulated portfolios and safety critical software and system, mixed software hardware I've seen there, there are people doing it the right way. So. Yeah, let, let's take that example because that's a that's a beautiful example. The the safe consumption of open source. This has been a, an increasingly scary area. We've seen for the first time in the last eighteen months, uh, initially with the event stream library on Node, uh, we've seen bad actors plant vulnerabilities in open source dependencies in order to exploit particular targets. So our current state of practice for open source safety is that we do this scanning in the pipeline. We make sure that they, you know, there are no known vulnerabilities. We register the components so that we can remediate in the event of future vulnerabilities being discovered. We check the IP licensing. And we sort of have these prophylactic shields that we've built into our pipelines to automate them. Well, where it's going in the age of diffusion is that in addition to the prophylactic shields, we make 
open source safer upstream. So if you look at what it, the, you look at the moves that GitHub is taking with uh, LGTM and advanced security, what they are doing as they pick up NPM now, assuming that acquisition goes through, the goal is to get to a point where the dependencies are known good and have been scanned for not just identified vulnerabilities, but for unidentified zero days. And that's that's the the direction that GitHub is driving with the code QL technology. That's an example of changing from saying, huh, we test this uh, electrical device in a, a laboratory to make sure that under all of these circumstances, it doesn't catch fire to saying we're going to build it in a way that the uh, materials are not themselves flammable. So it's, it's a clear indicator of the shift across the inflection point in this economic transition that, that we're looking at. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's again, it shows you know, sort of the maturity with which you and other organizations are, are considering, you know, basically your supply chain dependencies on your context um, that you're bringing in. And the fact that this, this is a part of your value stream, if you just ingest code libraries and leave it at that, you've kind of missed the boat. Um, whereas there are ways to do it safely. And actually, Ogie Demore, who did Semly, you know, like we were collaborating in the early days around aspects and security. So it's, What's amazing to me is through something like GitHub, how consumable these best practices are, are today. So again, just kind of back to that, re, not reinventing the wheel, but, but kind of you know, safe and disciplined approaches to consuming third-party stuff and open source in your value streams. So Sam, we're at time. Any other, this has just been amazing. Any, any other ground we haven't covered that you want to get across, but I think incredibly valuable um, what you've said so far in terms of all those leaders and technologists who want to help the organizations double down on the differentiated core, do it quickly, you know, deploy fast and learn fast. So anything we've missed? Yeah, so I would say to the leaders, focus on your new core. If you don't have one, create a lighthouse as quickly as possible. And that means not a an innovation lab or a research lab off in some remote office in a corner. It means something important to the business that's going to be highly visible where you can work in the new way without the old impediments. Make that lighthouse successful and make envy your friend. Get everyone to say, hey, they're doing better. They're having more fun. It looks like a great party over there. How come we're not invited? <laughs> and and get that that virtuous cycle going by proving the success and letting success breed more success and letting the fun at the party make everyone else jealous and make them request invitations rather than as a leader saying, "Hey guys, you know, 
everything you know is wrong, you're doing things wrong, we need to change, I'm gonna uh, force this through, and uh, after you learn the new ways, you'll be happy. Make them say, wait a minute, we see those folks over there, they're happy, they're having fun, we wanna be invited. Sam, I, I, I love that you brought that in because with my own staff, I've, I've been trying to emphasize that, right? We, this, these are very trying times for people, but people who feel like they're making an impact, they're having fun, they're delivering things that are being used and, and making a difference and, you know, through their own craft, those are the people that, that happiness and productivity, I think, is, is so key to helping our staff and, and using Envy as a tool to bring more people to the party, the be it on Zoom or Teams or wherever, is, I think, is the right way to go. So It's a great example bringing this back to the pandemic, uh, healthdata.org is from a, uh, an epidemiology group at the University of Washington, and they started uh, locally looking at uh, models for the virus spread and in infection rates here in King County, Western Washington, Washington State, and then said, wait a minute, we've got something here that's generally valuable, so now you go to their website there and they have models for the 50 us states and they're updated daily and that's the stuff that suddenly is becoming the real data in the daily briefings instead of all of the blah blah of conjecture and it's a it's just it's a beautiful current example of doing something important visible and contagious in the right way. That is a great example. And Sam, thank you for incredibly actionable advice for, for everyone who's listening. So tell us if people want to learn more from you, where to find you, this ADA website that you mentioned, uh, just give us some, some coordinates oh, online. Yeah. So if you want to read about our practices at Microsoft, the URL is https aka.ms slash DevOps. If you want to try out Azure DevOps, it's dev.azure.com. And uh, it's free for teams up to five. And it's a you know few dollars a month if you get bigger and um, uh, really pennies. So uh, I recommend those things. Of course, everyone knows github.com um, for hosting your and consuming your open source and there are on the github site you can also learn about github private instances and the like so those are all readily available to the public excellent well thank you so much sam stay safe and I, and uh, everyone please please do uh reach out to sam and flood him on twitter with uh with your questions because i've always seen Sam as someone who's well ahead of the curve in terms of where organizations need to be and need to be thinking and has been putting so much of that into practice. So thank you again, Sam. Thank you, Mick. Great talking to you as always. Thank you to Sam for joining me on the podcast. As always, I encourage you to leave a review or follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Mick underscore Kirsten, or using the hashtags Mick plus one or project to product. Sam's Twitter handle is at Sam Guckenheimer. And note, I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.